Welcome to week six of Dream Team 415's podcast. Join Brittany, Margie, Jill, and Cameron in a Q&A regarding anti-Black linguistic racism. Margie will begin with a question about the Lessons from Lucy Laney video. When I watched the Lessons from Lucy Lane, they mentioned that they are honoring the dialect of the parents. What are your guys' opinions on this? Do you think that that's something you'd want to implement into your classroom? Why? Um, Yeah, this is a really uh, good quote that you bring up um, from the Lucy Laney video. Um, Honoring the dialect of the parents, I think that's really important um, because these students are learning from their parents on how to speak. Um, and that's all that they know. So um, respecting how the parents have taught their children um, is really important because respecting the parents and the language that they speak um, is also another way of respecting the student's identity. Um, so definitely, yes, I would, I would like to implement something like this into my classroom, um, something where just the students feel like um, like in the Lucy Laney video, they specified that the teachers don't want the students feeling like foreigners in their own classroom. So just to, creating a safe space for that. Margie, I definitely think that it is important for educators to implement some kind of way where they acknowledge varieties of dialects that kids use at home. Whether that's through a free write journal or or just encouraging students to talk to their friends in ways that they normally would. Um, I definitely think that that's important to connect students' cultures with their families as well as in the classroom too. I think that that's what really makes Lucy Lane so successful is the fact that the way they approach code switching is that they have a balance between the two where they encourage them to speak in a way that will help them in their future, as well as have times where they can just be themselves and talk however they want. Question six on the activity guide, they talked about what ways anti-Black stuff appears in social media. What was your guys' example of this? And what are some things that have anti-Black or linguistic racism in today's world? Yeah, so um, with question six on the activity guide, um, I couldn't really think of like super specific examples. The only thing I thought of was like, again, like the Morse podcast, like with music, um, the I, I thought that um, a lot of music today, I feel like people use AV terms, um, which kind of mirrors how in early American music artists used AV for profit. Um, appropriating culture and then also benefiting from parts of Black culture that Black people themselves face discrimination for. Um, So playing into capitalism and being strategic within the music industry for some creators is often a form of appropriation and is used for non-Black people to seem cultured or sometimes, you know, woke, um, as seen within the minstrel shows as well. Um, People in the North used them to feel cultured and um, what they thought that black people acted like. 
Margie, I was really excited to answer that question on the activity guide because I was really able to connect it to my own experiences. And I kind of talked about something that I'm very familiar with in pop culture, which is um, drag culture. I really started getting into it because one, like just the comedy and the drama that happens in shows, um, I'm referring to kind of like RuPaul's Drag Race, is just super entertaining. But the emergence really happened, I think, because of people's interest in makeup and just transformation, too. Um, So that's like a huge part of the show. So I kind of talked about how there's this intersectionality with the black and queer community. And since I'm I was raised in a very liberal household, I'm pretty familiar um, because I have family members who are gay. But um I really think drag is such a beautiful thing because it tears down the walls of gender and it really does have such a huge impact on mainstream society because you see the same lingo lingo and rhetoric used by white people on platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and especially TikTok. You've probably even heard or used yourself words like fierce, yes, kiki, slay, fleek, queen, etc., And all these words were fueled by black drag culture. I kind of spoke about how um, I really connected what we read in the April Baker Bell article about how much you don't realize how white America buys into these trends and rhetoric when it's something like Target or home goods merchandise. Yet often it's those same individuals who are potentially completely homophobic or racist. Um, I would say that most of the time, like, people who understand where outright appropriation occurs rather than just appreciation usually don't plaster it on every article of clothing they have. Um, But that is definitely something I continue to see in my everyday life, especially on social media, of people, especially white individuals, appropriating black culture. So when we looked at the history of the U.S. census in class, um, I was really interested to see how that reflected the history of my own family. Um, So I was wondering, what did you think about the census results, or did you find anything that you thought was particularly interesting? Or, I mean, if there's anything else you wanted to discuss um, about what we learned in class. Um, I mean, with the history of my own family, um, I'm pretty sure... um, so in the 1820s, we wrote down that, you know, that was when the gold rush started. Um, and then in 1880, there was a Chinese category added. Um, my family is Chinese. Um, and I remember talking to my grandma um, for an interview project one time in high school about our family's history. And she said that um, she had, I think it was a grandfather who came to the U.S. at that time to, like help with the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, and he found work through that. Um, So it was just interesting to see how um, uh, history is reflected, like, in the numbers, too. I didn't really think about, um, you know, how how everything was kept track of um, and how it kind of led to where I am today. Cameron, I think this is a really good question, especially just for me, like, my, like, the way I identify as white, like, I'm not really in any minority when it comes down to, like, race or anything, 
And so, like, looking at the census, it was kind of interesting that, like, the baseline was white, and then they took it from there. And I think that's kind of disappointing. Like, I don't know. And at one point, there was, like, a term, like, they were using, like, terms that are definitely not politically correct or just correct in any way, like, almost, like, inappropriate, if you will. And also, like, I don't know, some of, like, the history, like, they had, like, slaves under one of them. And, like, why, like, that's not, like, like, that's not, like, something you identify as. Like, you don't identify yourself as a slave. Especially, like, what I really didn't like is that, like, during some points of this period, like, the people that were, like, making the census were, like, just people who, like, come on someone's door and look. Like, it wasn't people identifying themselves. It was just someone looking and going, yeah, that seems about right. And that's, like, gross and not cool in any way. And so I'm happy that our country's evolved, but I'm also sad in that, like, that was something that we started off doing. This is Jill recording. Cameron, I was also very... I guess not really shocked and surprised by it because this is especially where historical context is really important to educate students and just every individual on. Especially as a white heteronormative individual, I think that that's kind of something that just flies over a lot of people like minds' heads. But it's so crucial because it provides such a big context for the concept of generational wealth and how even when we looked at the chart of how new racial and ethnic subcategories were introduced, not a lot of people, I mean, majority of people weren't accounted for, only pretty much white American citizens. And then when you think about it, this is the foundation that our country has been built on. So think about how that has translated into today and the systematic oppression that often happens with these minority groups. So yeah, while our country has made, you know, some strides towards um, to be where we are today, you still have to consider the historical damage that white individuals put on these minorities and are, are still affecting today. Um, I also wanted to talk about the um, three approaches of language education for black students that um, April Baker Bell um, discusses. Um, there's the eradicationist, um, respectability, and anti-racist pedagogies. Of the three approaches, uh, which have you seen the most in your schooling or in your teaching experience, or um, if you have any other thoughts on this topic? Honestly, and unfortunately, I haven't really seen any of these in place, at least in my own personal experience, um, because I never really saw AVE being used um, in my schooling or my education. Like. We didn't really have many black students in our schools. Um, I don't think I could recall one black student from at least in my elementary years. Um, so we never really had to face these issues. And I, I think most of the teachers in my area, um, I don't know if they would have to acknowledge these differences um, because if they just weren't there, uh, it's kind of hard to put that kind of pedagogy in place. Um, 
but I think that going forward um, with me most likely going back to teach in that area, um, I really would like to see um, a fully anti-racist um, black language pedagogy being used uh, because it actively disassembles the anti-black linguistic racism. And even if there aren't that many black students in my future classroom, um, I would like to promote the acceptance of um, all languages and encourage communication um, over the correctness of a student's speech. Um, I think that's really important. Personally, after like the three approaches that I've seen, Cameron, um, I would say that the one of like making sure that like the language is respected is the one that I see the most. Just because like they like to change like an entire curriculum or change all of that, I think is something that's really difficult to do. And not one teacher can just decide to do that. I feel like that's possibly a district thing. And so um I think that it's more of like learning about it and respecting it and getting a better understanding of it than it is like implementing it and enforcing it in like a classroom space. And so um, the, I think that that's okay. Like, I feel like change doesn't come immediately. And so I feel like at this point, like, or at least like at this stage, like just discussing it and talking it and keeping an open mind about it is probably like one of the best things that we can do just as like a teaching community. Something I would like to do, though, is like in my classroom, possibly talk about it just because this is something that interests me. And I feel like addressing it would be something that's like almost needed, especially for young students, because they get to learn about it a little bit more. And obviously, I just want to make sure that they respect it as much as I do. Honestly, Cameron, I think this is a really eye-opening question, too, because while I'd like to see more anti-racist black language pedagogy being used in how teachers facilitate their classrooms, I just feel like there still isn't enough of it today. So I'd have to agree with Margie. Um, the most I see is probably the approach where respectability language pedagogies happens and occurs. Um, basically where black language is honored and used as a bridge to teach about mainstream English, but the approach still does not actively work against um, mainstream white normative education. I feel like in order to be representative of black language better, we really need to make our school feel like a community where we tear down those rigid walls of education and students feel they have to be a certain way to succeed in a classroom. You can compare language with learning styles and in that case there's so many different ways that a student can learn. So why are we not prioritizing the way that they express themselves and also taking that into account? School should ultimately be a place of enlightenment and not so much boxing students into where they feel like they have to go a certain route or be a certain way so that they will find success in their futures. Because that's just absolutely ridiculous and not even realistic. Especially in a world of so many diverse people, that it just doesn't make sense.
While I was listening to the Birth of American Music podcast, Morris started listing some popular artists who have, sometimes unintentionally, ripped off Black American genres like blues and classic rock. I made my own realization when he used Amy Winehouse as an example because she's one of my favorite music artists. But can you guys think of any other white artists who appropriate Black American music culture today? Yeah, this is um, an interesting point you bring up. Um, I can't necessarily think of an artist that has appropriated, like, Black American um, music, like how you mentioned Jill, Amy Winehouse. Um, But I think the first person that comes to mind is Aquafina. And I'm, I'm not really familiar with her. I've only heard certain things. I don't really follow her. Like, I haven't um like seeing a lot of the things that she's in but I have heard things about people saying that she puts on like what people might call like a black scent like using um AAVE or like that kind of intonation um in her speech um and I'm I'm pretty sure like it's her voice that has gotten her a lot of roles so that's kind of interesting to see how I mean I'm not very familiar with her but if that is true um, the way that she could have benefited from appropriating Black culture. Jill, I think this is a really great question. This is actually something that I had to do a little bit of research in, just because, like, my own, like, my own type of music, I don't think appropriates, like, Black culture in any way. So what I did do is I actually kind of, like, did a little bit of research, and something that I found, um, it was from, like, a New York Times article, and, um, like, it was talking about, like, blues and, like, Motown music, and it said that, like, Elvis Presley had, like, believed that, like, he had been called, and this is a direct quote, he had believed that he'd been called by blackness, which is, like, ridiculous, like, I don't understand, like, where, where did you get that, because, like, that's not how that works at all. And so, though, like, Elvis Presley isn't an artist that I actively listen to, I think that he's kind of a household name. And so, I think that that's, like, ridiculous. Like, absolutely not. Like, I don't think that people like Amy Winehouse or Elvis Presley should be able to, like, kind of rip off that culture. Like, I can understand, like, maybe they have an appreciation for it, but I still don't think that's any excuse. After watching the short film, Hair Love, in what ways do you guys think this could positively impact how a Black American student perceives themselves if more videos like these were shown in classrooms or just mainstream society? Yes, I definitely wanted to talk about this one, um, the short film, Hair Love. Um, I think this would be wonderful for students to see um, of all ages. I can't recall at that age seeing any black representation in the media. So not only for non-black students to see um, their peers um, in film, like if you've heard the idea of like windows and mirrors um, in media or, you know, in the curriculum where it's really important for students to see a mirror um, themselves reflected in, you know, um, in media or their curriculum but also windows for students to see other people's points of views 
um, or perspectives or, um, you know, a celebration of their culture. So with hair, I mean, I think it normalizes um, people having different textures of hair. Like, um, I know in the activity guide, I discussed a little bit about, like, the policing of um, black hairstyles. And I know we touched on this in class, too, how students with uh, dreadlocks or afros are told that their hairstyle is inappropriate or unprofessional. Um, so I think that films like these, like Hair Love, um, I think that students can really form an appreciation for their own or other people's uh, cultures. Jill, I think that Hair Love is like an absolutely so cute short film. Um, and I definitely think that it would be cute to show in classrooms just as like an empowerment tactic or not tactic, but like, you know, like an empowerment like way. And so I feel like um, just like it gives like black students or uh, like American students just like the ability to kind of like feel appreciated in a wider space. And I feel like it gives other students in the classroom like a chance to like learn or a chance to like appreciate them. And I think that's like a huge thing. And so I think that more videos like that should be shown in the classroom. I don't think it should just be like, I think that it should be a wide range. Like, I think it should range from like, like different races, different ethnicities. Like, I feel like maybe doing like one every week or like doing one like that. Like, that's something I might implement into my own classroom because it gives the students like an ability to watch a video, like appreciate something, kind of like reflect on their own experiences or if not, like learn from a video that they watched. And I think that that's super powerful. Thank you for joining us for our Q&A regarding anti-Black linguistic racism. Today, we discussed honoring parents' dialects, appropriation in music, the U.S. Census, anti-Black linguistic racism in social media, the three approaches of language, education, and the representation that the short film Hair Love demonstrates. Check back in next week for some more content surrounding translanguaging.